Welcome to Gu Dao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Taoism to uncover its timeless wisdom and discuss how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, a practicing psychotherapist. I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach, David Wong. And joining us today, we're thrilled to have Diane Dreer. She has a PhD from UCLA and wrote her doctoral dissertation on spiritual development and Renaissance poetry. She's the author of many books on Taoism, including The Tao of Inner Peace. Diane's books have been translated into 10 languages, and her work has been featured in USA Today, Entrepreneur, Red Hook Glamour Cosmopolitan, Science of Mind, radio and TV talk shows, and websites on leadership and personal growth. Diane also has a master's degree in counseling and is credentialed as a positive psychology coach with the International Coaching Federation. She's also a lecturer and fellow of the Positive Psychology Guild in the UK. Please, let's welcome Diane. We're absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. I am delighted to be here. Great. So, you know, what, what's maybe some more that we should know about you? Maybe give us a little introduction about how you got interested in Taoism and, and, and just, you know, kind of a, a high level snapshot of what Taoism means to you. Oh my gosh. Um, how I got interested in the wisdom of the East. Um, when I was 10 years old, my father was in the air force and we were stationed, he was stationed in the Philippine islands. And of course we went with him and uh, this was very different. I was born in Kentucky, lived in the Midwest and on the West Coast in the United States. But in the Philippines, we had a house with windows made out of seashells uh, and mango and papaya and banana trees grew in our yard. And my father brought back all of these artworks from Japan and from Hong Kong. And we had a, a young man who helped us clean our house, my mother was very happy to live there, who used to polish the floor by dancing across the floor with a coconut husk. And the wow. co yeah, would polish the floor, the, uh, the coconut fiber. So this was a very different world. And I, 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 I thought, my gosh, what kind of world is this? This is wonderful. I resonated with it. Tried to do Chinese brush painting at age 10. The results were not beautiful, but uh, was fascinated by East and West and by the differences and the similarities. We later were transferred to uh, Grandview, Missouri, and I was drawing palm trees in my art class. And all the other students laughed at me and said, Diane doesn't know how to draw a tree. Aww. Branches are coming out of the top. Uh, and my, the teacher said, well, there are trees like that you know, somewhere in the world. And I thought, East, West, there is no one way to have a tree. There is, you know, it's both and, not either or. It's not right or wrong. So um, growing up, trying to, you know, coordinate my various places that I lived and different I began meditating when I was in college, uh, began reading Alan Watts' The Way of Zen with many of my colleagues, uh, and found the Tao Te Ching. 
and realized that that was the answer for me. That was yin and yang. That was seeing the larger whole. That was being inspired by the beauty and the unity of nature. And it seemed to be what we needed uh, in my life, in my world, in my work, in relationships, and in everything. The wisdom of Tao is eternally relevant, especially now when there's so much division and discord in our world. Well, what a wonderful way to describe how how you got into Taoism and what it means to you and just really love the way that you describe it. Um, both and David and I, that's something that we find ourselves kind of revisiting as a theme frequently. And, and what we do, just noticing how divided everything is, everything seems to be about choosing sides and drawing lines and picking a team and a side and, and, we need more both and, and and understanding the the dialectical nature of everything. That's that that is what's wonderful about Taoism because it's real to everything. I totally agree. <laughs> well, I know David has a lot of questions for you, and and I have some too. But I'm going to kind of hand things off to him just to kind of get our discussion going and would would love to hear david um you know any questions that you have for diane today well first of all welcome to the show diane thank you david thank you for uh spending some time with us uh to uh uh to share your journey and your insights on walking the timeless way with our listeners uh really there's as you said earlier there's no better timing than now to have this conversation with you, given you know what's going on in the world right now, more than ever we need both inner peace and outer peace. And uh, in your book, you offered uh, many uh, practical and actionable uh, insights on you know finding that uh, path to peace. Um, so today, uh, first of all, before I begin, I actually want to share with you a little personal anecdote. I own a copy of your first edition of the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, when I, uh, you know, reread uh, for our podcast, when I reread your latest revised vision, uh, you know, uh, edition, somehow the name the title of the book uh you know kind of remind me of something i read a long time ago so i did some search i found that co that cover that familiar yin and yang diagram with the vibrant orange and and green background so that was during the time the so i noticed the date of the publication that was exactly the year when i came to this country to come to harvard to study. And uh, so I remember getting that book. I probably if I my, you know, memory served me well, I got it from the Harvard store just across the Harvard yard. And uh, the reason I got it because I read it, it was beautifully written. And the interesting thing about it, because that book, you know, the way you made it accessible, almost like a server serve a, a bridge because Tao Te Ching, I brought the original cl classic uh, book with me 
uh, to the United States because I bought it in Beijing. It's called a white, uh, white Cloud Temple. That's a Taoist temple, famous Taoist temple in Beijing. So I bought, I bought the, you know, with a classic Chinese, that original. But when I saw your book, it was beautifully written in English and also make it, you know, everybody debate about the different version of it, you know, the meaning of Tao, but you just, you know, the way you render it, the shared example, uh, you know, I, I found that I can use it when I made this transition from the East, you know, from the Chinese culture to the Western culture. So it's really like, you know, I can't believe, you know, it's, um, you know, we cross paths on this podcast, you know, let's assume that's the mythical Tao at work. <laughs> Absolutely. There are no accidents in the universe with things like this. Thank you, David. I really appreciate that insight and that wonderful um, affirmation, given your background in Chinese with the original Tao. Wow. <laughs> that really touches my heart. Let me start with a question. When I reread uh, your latest version, in chapter one, you started to share your personal journey, you know, to search for peace, uh, your generation, you know, marching and, you know, I could even picture it, marching and pro protesting. Uh, you know, I didn't uh, experience that myself, but I remember uh, when I studied at Harvard, you know, every day I walk into the Harvard Yard and there are the inscriptions actually from Harvard President Charles Eliot. Uh, you know, when you enter on the outside, there's uh, the inscription, enter to grow in wisdom. Then when you walk outside, walk, uh, you know, toward the outside of the yard, you see depart to better serve thy country and thy people. So we, you know, the, really the essence of the liberal arts education in the United States is to encourage us to make a difference, to change the world. And then, of course, over the years, you know, after I graduated in the working world, you know, I tried to live that out. Now, at the age where I am now, you know, I'm looking at the world today. You know, the question I want to ask you is, um, you know, from your own personal journey, how did you, from the time when you were active, with your generation trying to make the world a better one to where you are today. Um, how do you actually balance that uh, activist role and the Taoist role? How to integrate those two? How to integrate the uh, yin and the yang again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in college, I was very focused. I tried to meditate as, you know, but I was mainly focused in terms of social justice on externals. Mm. My friend and I were very active. We marched, we wrote letters, we you know, contacted our congressional reps. We uh, protested against oppressive establishment values, the war in Vietnam and racism. Mm -hmm. uh, we were pushing back against something that we saw as wrong. Uh, and we meant well, but some of us became very angry and self-righteous, figuring that we had the right answers and those idiots who were running our country did not. <laughs> okay. I um, and that, that caused a backlash 
because what happened after that was that uh, <clears throat> we elected Richard Nixon and uh, yeah, uh, and he spoke up for the silent majority who were not people in my generation. We were very vocal. So I realized that our hearts were in the right place. We cared, but we were excessively Yang. Um, we were not at peace within ourselves and our frustration, Yang kind of energy went out and, and caused people to not to listen to us. I mean, I some people listen to us. So now what I do is I balance my activism with meditation in the morning and the evening, contemplative practice, uh, commitment to my own spiritual growth, because as Gandhi said, we need to be the change we wish to see in the world. And my studies in positive psychology, uh, I have a master's in counseling as well now, uh, <clears throat> tell me that when we are stressed, we don't make wise decisions and we cannot communicate very well. So uh, I need, I realize it's, it's my responsibility to maintain my personal balance, even in these times to, uh, you know, to be able to function properly and to be able to stand for the, the uh, ideas I believe in. And peace is not passive. I still volunteer for causes I believe in, whether it's working for social justice at my university, phone banking for elections, working in my local town council uh, to try to remind people that we need to care about our community in various ways, including environmentally. So, uh, but I, but it's a question of yin and yang. One more thing. I've also participated in a group called Braver Angels. Mm -hmm. that other people from red and blue political beliefs to listen and learn together to build greater understanding because democracy involves people working together. And when we're polarized, we cannot do that. And when we're totally stressed out and or self-righteous, we cannot listen. <laughs> so the outer work requires the inner work. Exactly. So what does a, like a typical day or week look like for you uh, to live out that kind of a balance? Um, gosh, a typical day, I, I get up and meditate first thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I write uh, right after I meditate because my mind is clear. I then uh, become more active and go out and do uh, do things, errands. Uh, try to spend some time outdoors in my garden every day because it's 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 beautiful <laughs> this time of right connecting with the the mother connecting with nature, watching things grow because that makes me aware of the cycles of beginnings and endings. And um, it also, nature is incredibly uh, soothing, empowering, and it makes, it makes me feel hopeful. And then I, I uh, you know, have dinner with my husband, uh, do a little reading and meditate before I go to sleep. So I begin and end my days with yin, then there's yang, and then there's being in touch with nature and staying in touch with the news and trying to figure out, is there something that I can do? You know, 
uh, to try to bring greater harmony to this particular area. What news channel do you listen to nowadays? News channels? Or channels, or let's say uh, there's a part of, uh, you know, what I'm hearing is there's a natural rhythm even throughout the day, right? Starting yeah. with the, the meditation. Then you, you're you kind of engaged with the world, you know, with the people in, around you, your husband, your spouse, right? Your family members. Uh, I was wondering, you know, as that kind of outreach, like when you reach out to the world and interact with more people or through devices or channels, then you have all these stimuluses. How do you manage that piece of it so that you can keep the calmness, but at the same time, actively maybe thinking about, let's say some of the activities uh, that you are involved in, like the, you know, the red and blue, right? So I'm especially interested in how you bring, you know, all that mindset into the conversation when they, when you interact with those bunch of the individuals who may not have the Taoist training. That's the, the part that I'm particularly curious about. Okay. Very good question. Uh, it's easy to get thrown off balance in our very uh, busy world. Uh, yeah. I also do positive psychology coaching. So before I meet with a client, which is usually on the telephone because or uh, Skype, I have international clients as well. Uh, I send her down with meditation so mm -hmm. that I can be present with that person and, uh, you know, to really tune in because there are all these distractions around us. And I think for me, at least, I need to stop to pause and send her down <clears throat> a lot of times during the day when I feel that I'm getting distracted. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So you put yourself in the, because a lot of times um, the external stimulus threw us off because we are not centered yet. So we have to maintain ourselves, center ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, I studied, I seem to be a, a perpetual student. I studied with the HeartMath Institute in uh, Northern California. And they have these simple practices, which are very much like Tao. You put your hand on your heart and you breathe slowly and deeply and focus on your heart. Uh, and that has been shown, they have instruments that measure this, to relieve stress and to increase our intuition and our creativity because it brings us back to center. So um, I'm very subversive, I guess. Uh, I, for the last few years when I was teaching at Santa Clara University, I began every one of my classes each day in class with a small, a short guided meditation because I wanted the students to be present in class. And because research has shown that that students, you know, when they're less stressed, they 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 learn better, They learn better. I see. Yeah. And they they were really comfortable and they 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 seemed to really like that. And it helped me too, because I'd be rushing across campus to get to class and we'd all be coming in with all this commotion. Students right. would be looking at their phones and we would then, okay, please put away, close your eyes, take a deep breath, let's center down here uh, so that we're present. That really worked. 
What was really funny one day, David, though, is that when I was walking to class, uh, a, a colleague who was upset about something had to talk to me, and I was late to class that day. And I paused at the door because one of my students was there at the front of the class leading the rest of the class in a guided meditation. And uh, <laughs> since I wasn't there, they needed to do it. So I paused outside the door until she said, and now as we're centered at peace, gently open your eyes and come back to the room. And then I came in and I was so grateful because my students had embraced that lesson for themselves. Wow, wow. What if we introduce that ritual to the US Congress? What difference it might make? It would really make a difference because then people wouldn't be defensive, ego, stressed, you know, fight or flight. Yeah, um, my colleague Juan Velasco and I uh, were asked at one point to do a, a, a meditation before one of our department retreats because if you get any group of people together, there's a likelihood of their disagreeing and becoming polarized. And so, of course, we had that day, we had a wonderful meeting and a wonderful retreat because we were all fully present. <laughs> I see. I see. Well, we need to have a meditation, uh, a special meditation officer. <laughs> yes, yeah, that will be a very, very, um, uh, very um, impactful and uh, very essential in a role um, in any kind of groups or organizations, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, but that requires an expanded perspective on the part of leadership to realize why that's so important. Yeah, how do you get there? How do you facilitate the understanding first? Right, um, talking about that, let me shift gears to talk about um, leadership. Um, you said in the book that Tao Te Ching was a handbook for leaders, you know, about 2,500 years ago. When we look at the leaders today, I want, you know, I because they are the, the position they occupy, they have a greater impact than the normal people, uh, you know, in terms of the, the role model they set. In the book, you mentioned, you know, the you know, former president, uh, Jimmy Carter, that you encountered. Uh, in one at the one of the conferences, and to me, because I read you know one of his books, uh, recent books on faith, he is not only a devoted Christian, but feels to me like a Taoist, embodying the three treasures of uh, you know three treasures mentioned in Tao Te Ching. So I want to ask you. I'm curious about your perspectives on institutional leaders today, corporate, political, educational, uh, because, you know, over these uh, uh, recent years, there's actually a growing distrust of leadership and uh, institutions, which partially explain, you know, why, you know, our world in chaos of that lack of trust. Who are the leaders nowadays, what they should do uh, to embody some of the Taoist principles you laid out in the book? Wow, <laughs> very, very important question. The Tao says in one of its beautiful 81 short poems, 
with the best of leaders, when the work is done, the project completed, the people all say we did it ourselves. The best leaders bring out the best in everyone around us. They combine the energies, the insights, the perspectives, and the gifts of their people. So it's a win-win, it's a both and. It's uh, Carl Rogers, the uh, psychotherapist, and uh, actually in later life, he became a peace activist. He would use his uh, active listening to bring disparate groups together. He carried that quote from the Tao Te Ching in his wallet uh, to remind him, that's the kind of leader we need. What we generally seem to have are people who uh, are people who are yang, imbalanced, active, ego-driven, and they're into power over instead of power with. This is, uh, you know, very, very important to know the distinction. So um, we are imbalanced. Our leaders tend to be imbalanced, and then that creates more imbalance. So um, recent leaders and current leaders, in South Africa, I was in, inspired by Nelson Mandela a few years ago, who uh, had been a fiery activist in his early life. Mm -hmm. He then was uh, in an enforced yin period, 27 years uh, in prison, and he emerged with this yes, yes. of the new South Africa and became the leader his country needed at that time. Uh, you know, it wasn't ego, it wasn't pushing, it was including that he was able to do. Currently, we have people like the Dalai Lama, who practices contemplation, shall we say, advocates world peace, and he's also very actively involved with a group of neuroscientists studying the way the brain works when people are meditating, so that we can understand what it is that, that helps us become more compassionate. So uh, he's combining the wisdom of East and West, active and contemplative, uh, to promote greater compassion. We also have Jane Goodall, who's deeply spiritual, as well as an expert primatologist. And she combines her deep love of nature with uh, activism to inspire the next generation of, of on this planet to care for the planet. You know, mm. and there's someone I know uh, here in California, Dr. Jim Doty, who uh, I interviewed recently, who uh, grew up in poverty. His father was alcoholic, lost jobs. They were uh, evicted, didn't have a place to live for a lot of the time. There was no food in the house. His mother was an alcoholic who, uh, or his mother rather, his father was alcoholic. His mother was depressed and suicidal and made repeated suicide attempts. You could say that he grew up with what are called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. There would not be much hope for this young man. However, at age 12, he wandered into a, a magic shop in a strip mall nearby his house. And the owner's mother, a very kind woman named Ruth, said, I will teach you magic. And she taught him meditation. Mm. lunch for the few weeks that she was visiting her son that summer, and it changed his life. He realized that, that he could, by, by making a difference within him, by finding peace within him. 
he could find greater opportunities around him. Uh, and he wrote a book called Into the Magic Shop, which uh, kind of details this. But he, he later managed to go to college and medical school, became a neurosurgeon at Stanford, operating on people's brains, saving their lives. And he uses meditation to center down before an operation. I'm glad he does that. Yep. Sometimes when he is in a very difficult situation, he will pause and take three deep mindful breaths and then go back. He's also founded the Center uh, for uh, Contemplative, uh, Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, C-Care, at Stanford, with the help of the Dalai Lama, to do research on compassion, to give workshops on compassion, and to help other people develop greater compassion with some of these mindfulness, Taoist, you know, uh, inner peace techniques. So I see him as a leader who continues to contribute. What does it take to have more leaders like that? Yes, that's what I was wondering. The reason I'm asking this question, so from the uh, what you just shared, it sounds like there are pockets of Taoist leadership in different domains of our world. And uh, so that's, you know, that's really a ray of hope. Um, the, at the same time, you know, when I look at the world today, because uh, my uh, concentration was government. I studied government uh, leadership and uh, international relations at Harvard when I was a undergraduate there. Still, a lot of the you know advancements in neuroscience, in psychology, about you know human nature, about how we behave, I found that it's interesting that they haven't made their way much. To, uh, to enter into those disciplines to be significant. In, in, for example, in international relations, if we are looking at the war right now, a lot of the talks are still about, you know, forces, power, the brute power, right, to outpowering somebody. Um, so that made me, uh, and also I work in the corporate world, uh, which I can share later after you know, our, um, you know, in the later part of our conversation. How can, given the forces, the political forces and the commercial forces at play right now, in those arenas, are we going to always have those kind of young people? Or maybe the Tao is working in such a way that it returns. It kind of, there's too much of that. You know, I see there, you know, more female leaders, Right, so those are some kind of interesting happenings. Maybe that will bring us back to some kind of balance. So my question to you is, are you hopeful in those commercial and business arena will come at a time when, you know, there will be more leaders who are, who know that kind of balance, who embody that kind of a natural forces? I am hopeful. And I believe we need to get the word out that Tao leaders are much more effective than the old top-down limited vision of leadership, which involves power, externals, and control. If you look at Russia right now, it's actually very sad to look at Russia and Ukraine, but you know, looking at Russia, Russia used to have great art, literature, you know, Dusty. Yeah. 
souls in each and you know um and music prokofiev tchaikovsky you know um beautiful beautiful music beautiful art and they don't have that now because the creativity has been snuffed out by top-down totalitarian authoritarian leadership you can't be creative when somebody is trying to control you yes. <laughs> that way Absolutely. yes and in businesses if if the leader is that controlling there can be no innovation no creativity in a, in a situation of you know conformity control and in fear in essence no authenticity you know the younger generation the knowledge workers you cannot control their mind like the assembly line because their imagination is the core of the work and, and that's our future so we have to i i think that there are ways to convince some of these uh profit-driven uh, corporate leaders that uh, control doesn't work. It won't help them create new, new possibilities, new products. You know, they'll get stuck, they'll get stagnant. Uh, stagnation is the, different, is the opposite of the dynamic growth balance of, of, of the Dow. They need to open uh, trust, create greater trust in organizations. We have, uh, some studies that have shown that when people feel that they can trust their leaders, everyone works better. People are more relaxed. They aren't stressed. When we're stressed, we are, our higher brain functions are uh, offline. So that uh, it's more effective to be in a Tao leadership situation, not to mention, of course, more compassionate and, uh, and better for people and the planet. But if, if some of these leaders can, these corporate people can be shown research that, that uh, demonstrates that actually it would increase their profits. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. That's the thing that we need to weave that into their overarching logic. They want to results. They want to be successful. But sometimes what they're doing is counterproductive, is just against is a cr at cross purpose of what they intend to accomplish. Uh, I, I don't wanna, yeah, <laughs> I wanna uh, just very quickly ask my third question, which is the, you know, really the at nation state. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the East and West, uh, you know, those, the critical, uh, you know, the um, both differences, I would say, because I have been living that, uh, you know, at the cross intersection of East and West for over 30 years now, you know, when I came to this country uh, in 1991. Um, right now, if you look at the U.S. and China, you know, the geopolitical tension and, poten and potentially conflicts. Uh, um, and um, I was wondering, you know, my observation has been these two great countries, because I know the people from China, that's where I came from, that's my root is, I also know the wonderful people here. I have lots of friends here. And, um, but seeing it's sad to see the misunderstanding and disconnect between the two nations. I find that a good comparison is, you know, from a cultural, political, economic perspective, there's the, you know, the differences, the opposites, but also the complementaries. Uh, if working together, 
can bring you know greater peace and opportunity and prosperity you know for the world. I want to get your take on it. If you talk to you know a President Biden or President Xi today, uh, you know by you know um, drawing upon some of the Taoist principles which originated in China, but the fact that we, you know, from different cultural traditions, we are coming together to have this conversation means there's something underlying that we are all share as a human race. So what would you say to them uh, by, you know, resolving some of the, you know, conflicts and turn that into not into combats, but into creative corporations, which open up more opportunities? Wow. <laughs> well, okay. Um, have have you all noticed on the news how often our American politicians talk about we've got China is a threat to our economy, you know? They're making China be the enemy, right? It's us against them. It's it's either or. It's, you know, it's it's that sense of having to fight China economically. You know, ridiculous. I think that capitalism encourages polarization and a, it, it encourages competition, you know, but some of the language that's used, you know, we've got to beat the uh, opposition, we've got to win market share, it's, it makes it like a war. And uh, so our paradigm needs to change. We need to stop talking about the beating the Chinese and, and realize that we're all living on the same planet. Uh, Biden and, and, and she and the diplomats, and I would hope some of our journalists who report these things, who then plant ideas and paradigms in people's minds, could instead of using the old kind of combat, you know, when things, when, when people or situations are in conflict, it can combat if we see the other side as the enemy. Uh, our differences then just lead to polarization. And any healthy relationship, personal or political, is, is a combination, a both and, not an either or. So um, conflict can involve greater partnership too in a process developed by International Conflict Resolution facilitator Dudley Weeks, who came to give workshops at my university and ended up being in some of my books. Uh, it's a process that involves yin and yang. It involves a lot of Rogerian listening. Our, our leaders and diplomats first need to listen to themselves and look beneath the surface of demands and expectations uh, and defensive reactions and say, what do we really need in this situation? look deep more deeply and then listen respectfully to our Chinese counterparts to understand what they need and create this, this sense of respect, first of all, and then understanding and then look at the needs and realize that somewhere there, our needs are going to connect. They're going to be needs that we share. We have common ground. We're all living on it. It's called planet Earth, and we need to yeah, take like a climate change. Uh, there's a lot of complex issues that requires more collaboration, 
than you know competition. Competition is part of nature, but then there's the collaboration. Actually, I, I heard there's a term called cooperation, which combines the competition and the cooperation, uh, which in uh, the Taoist term is xiang ke xiang sheng. Like ke means competition. Xiang sheng is mutually uh, mutually um, uh, mutually reinforcing to help the the life force. Absolutely, that is beautiful. So can we be partners? You know, can we recognize our common ground? Can we find a way that we can work together to create something that we both care about, that we both believe in, and to use our different skills and our different strengths mm. and our objectives mm. to create a new possibility? Um, Thank you. Thank you. Well, very well said. I want to, you know, hand it off to my partner, Ian. And, uh, you know, to he has some additional questions that, you know, we would like to ask you and then we can come back to another round of discussion. OK. Well, that was just very lovely just listening to the conversation that the two of you had. Um, I've got a few questions as well. And and my first one really is always looking back on my own, just, you know, when I was 18 years old and first started getting into Taoism, it resonated with me immediately. It, it was like, yes, this is it. And, and I understood that on an intuitive level, but looking back from today, I recognize just how much Tao still needed to kind of work inside of me to really, makes sense and, and at a deeper level and in my own growth and and Taoism how much it's changed and obviously I'm hoping that it still does I know Diane you wrote um, 30 years ago is when you your first edition of your book came out and obviously life has changed a lot since then what I want to understand is since that first edition of the Tao of inner peace was written, how has your understanding of Taoism changed? I have a great deal more respect, uh, commitment to the Tao. It was a beautiful philosophy that I read about when I was younger. And I realize it's a philosophy that I need to live uh, to help bring greater harmony to our world. Uh, it's amazing. My, my book has evolved uh, in different editions. It's just come out in a new audio book edition for people who would rather listen to books than actually uh, physically read them. And we, we have the Tao evolving uh, in people's consciousness in ways that anticipated current research in neuroscience and positive psychology. Um, what Lao Tzu recognized over 25 centuries ago in the Warring States period in ancient China when he was wandering in the woods looking for inspiration, I imagine, is that nature can heal us on many levels, uh, can relieve stress, relieve depression, expand our awareness, and heal us in body, mind, and spirit. 
And we're more aware of that now because of recent research that, that just reinforces what, what the Tao Te Ching says in its beautiful 81 passages. The idea of, of taking care of the peace within us, uh, stress management, what neuroscience tells us about what happens to our brains when we're stressed. We cannot function clearly and, and effectively. We cannot think creatively. We can't see possibilities. And the Tao, again, takes us back to nature, which helps relieve stress, tells us to focus on our breathing, uh, to look for the larger patterns and, and to see beyond our egos. Uh, so I believe now more than ever that the wisdom of Tao can help us achieve the vital balance we need to survive on this planet. Uh, to solve our problems, resolve conflicts creatively by seeing how the polarities of yin and yang, can, contemplation and action, self and other, can combine in a dynamic balance and that we're always growing, changing, moving uh, dynamically to become aware of that and to dance with that Taoist spirit throughout life with that greater perspective. So, so nice to hear your description of it. You talked about the healing power of nature, which you know I think is also the synonymous with the healing power of of Tao. And there's a, a type of therapy you you mentioned neuroscience and and psychotherapy. There's a, a Japanese style of therapy. I forget the Japanese word, but it's called forest bathing. And essentially, it's about healing through walking in to deep nature, into the deep forest, slowly engaging with the plants, the atmosphere, really just slowing down and taking it in, maybe even hugging. I mean, literally being a tree hugger and maybe out in the forest, even doing some taiji and and being immersed in in that place where Tao is fully present. And I just thought, wow, if 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 30 years ago I would have known about that. There's a a professor, if you if you research forest bathing on YouTube, there's there's this professor in Japan who his stuff shows up and he's built a 30-year career on basically walking in the woods, healing himself, healing people. And I just thought, wow, I wish I would have known then what I know now. And, and that's what I would have done. And basically I would have made a career out of just healing through walking in the woods, doing Tai Chi in the woods. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, Ian, because of course, Henry David Thoreau, uh, recognize that I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, you know, uh, Walden Pond. People have rediscovered this wisdom of Tao, of being of recognizing our oneness with nature in so many ways. There's a study at Berkeley where uh, psychologists had students look up at a big, tall university buildings, and then they had uh, students another group look up at these tall eucalyptus trees and then they tested them for awe and guess what the students who looked up at the eucalyptus trees felt this deep sense of oneness and awe and wonder 
And then they had this little experiment where the experimenter dropped the pens and pencils that you know they were using to mark certain questionnaires. And the students who'd experienced awe expressed greater compassion and helped the person pick up the pens that had been dropped. So awe heals us, inspires us, and you know makes us more compassionate. And we can feel awe, a sense of oneness with something larger than ourselves by being in touch with nature. I had a student a number of years ago uh, at Santa Clara University who was very frustrated because he, his, because of his uh, family's uh, spiritual background, he didn't drink. And on a lot of college campuses, students spend uh, considerable time drinking and ca carrying on and also being attached to their, uh, their phones and their devices. And my student was very frustrated because he was feeling really out of it because he didn't do those things. And uh, I, what, what did he do? Well, he felt really good going up into the Santa Cruz Mountains and, and just walking around in nature. And he founded a club called Into the Wild where he encouraged other students to come with him and to leave their devices behind and to bring a notebook if they wanted to write little notes about what they felt. Into the Wild has become the most popular uh, club on campus. And it's been years after my student's graduation, but he started something and he was giving himself what he needed, but he was also sharing something that the students needed, even though some of them didn't realize it at the time, which is to reconnect with nature. And they came back feeling energized, reinvigorated, healthy, and, and more whole. Well, the astonishing thing in that is that I've, I've kind of taken it for granted that that nature kind of breeds um, the, the three treasures. But what you're actually talking about is a study that shows when people engage deeply with nature and not even in a, a difficult way, but just, just looking at a tree, looking at a eucalyptus tree, allowing that eucalyptus tree to affect you, to be open to that eucalyptus tree, that, awe is something is is one of the products of that and that awe also breeds compassion and so when we think about the three treasures of Lao Tzu, there's actually this now scientific connection between you know Lao Tzu's theory on why these three treasures are treasures and and its connection to nature it makes a lot more sense that nature actually makes us in awe, and awe makes us compassionate. Mm -hmm. And we transcend our egos when we're in awe, just mm -hmm. like we're in a flow state. We not putting ourselves first. Yeah, yeah. The another of the three treasures. Yes, uh, it seems like contemporary uh, psychological research is uh, is validating a lot of the things <laughs> that the principles that are in the Tao. You know. So that so that we we may have known these things in our hearts, but now we have actual empirical evidence that these these principles are really true and they work. And I think it also kind of implores us then to explore how can we foster more trust toward 
science and and scientists, especially considering that that these are the results that they're coming up with. And I know earlier in your discussion with David, we talked about the lack of trust in, in institutions and in leaders. And I think there's very good reasons for that. I think people have been abused and lied to and and obviously not treated well in a lot of different ways. But there, here's this critical thing where if we don't have trust in, in science and we don't have trust in institutions that are genuinely trying to help the public and help society, we're missing out on this valuable information, which is really connecting timeless wisdom with a, a way to live our lives. I mean, it's, 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 it's exactly what David and I talk about with Gu Dao Jingxing, your timeless wisdom, walking it today. And so this, this need to rejuvenate trust and key elements in our society. I know this wasn't one of the questions on my list, but you know, how, how do you think, I mean, what's it going to take for, for people to start trusting, you know, this research that you're saying, um, you know, the, these things that our scientists and our institutions are, are providing to us, but there's not enough people getting the message. Wow. Uh, well, uh, I think there, there are a couple of problems that have led us to where we are right now. One is that uh, we have a breakdown of community. In the old days, <laughs> we used to know our neighbors, right? <laughs> and I still do uh, know quite a few of my neighbors because I walk my dog around the neighborhood and, you know, they, they know my dog and I recognize the other people who have dogs and I say hello. I, I consciously say hello to my neighbors because we need to make connections. If we are isolated individuals, we feel insecure, we need community, we need connection. Um, and there's be, become an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in America, for one place. Uh, and when we, we don't feel like we can trust anybody, that we have a community, and then we get bombarded by all kinds of information on the internet, some of which is just absolutely absurd. We don't know who, who to believe or what to believe because we don't have community. So I think that one way uh, is to build up community. Uh, there's a quote from the Tao, what, chapter 49, the Tao person creates harmony, reaching out from the heart to, to build community. We need to consciously rebuild community, starting where we are, you know, in our neighborhoods, uh, just connecting with people. And there's, again, there's a psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson, who's done research on what she calls micro moments of connectivity, saying, of course, we need close friends and family, but that's not enough. We need to feel like we belong uh, and that uh, a kind word, a, a smile, a wave, when that benefits both people, it relieves stress, it, it activates our immune system, we get a burst of positivity from just doing that. I think that we need to all commit to rebuilding community, starting where we are, and then reaching out to people that we might not agree with. Uh, and 
rebuild that community because without community, there can be no trust. Uh, and it, it's a it's a huge effort that's going to be required because I think that uh, to a certain degree, capitalism and social mobility have really eroded away our sense of community. And of course, we need to rebuild our community with nature. Same kind of thing. That sense of oneness, that sense of belonging, uh, that sense of being centered in, in, a, in a world that we can trust. Uh, then, ultimately, um, some of our friends, there's a woman down the street from me, uh, Ingrid, who's a scientist, and I trust Ingrid, so maybe that will help me trust science more. It reaches out from the center to, uh, to build, rebuild community. Yeah, we know that um, people evolved not in cities and mega cities or or even you know sizable towns that we evolved in groups of fifty to a hundred people, and that's how our brains are subsequently wired. I mean, civilization has only existed for two three thousand years, but the human species has been around you know several hundred thousand years and it's within that context that our our brains developed how they developed and and as you could imagine when there's 50 to 100 people that all have to cooperate together in a very intimate way to survive that obviously becomes a huge part of how we get our meaning how we get our worldview and how we just exist as as humans. And so going back to this atomized way of living that's been thrust upon us since industrialization and I mean, e even you know, post-agriculture, I mean, I think even Lao Tzu, who was seeing the effects of agricultural societies arising and you know, the greed that was arising out of that. But we do need to feel like there's a community that we're deeply, intimately connected with, and, and that just isn't the case anymore. Yeah, and when we don't have that community that we evolved as part of to need as human beings, we feel, I think, a deep underlying anxiety. We feel threatened, we feel defensive, and that, again, makes us unwilling to trust anybody, <laughs> okay? And it's kind of the, the absurd place that we're put in as therapists that all these people coming in with anxiety and we're trying to help them with their anxiety. But the problem is, is that it, there's not a problem with that person. There's a problem with their whole fundamental way of, of life. And so how do you, you know, help someone with their anxiety when it's this isolation, the lack of community, the atomized way of living that is producing the insecurity, the anxiety, the loneliness, it, it kind of starts bordering on the absurd. Yeah, and um, the COVID restrictions of, you know, social distancing and work have just exacerbated that even more. You know, I, I, when I was teaching, I could go for a long time without seeing anybody except for my husband. Uh, they were online, you know. Uh, there, there was no tangible relationship going on, and we need that. Uh, I, my coaching clients who are anxious, <laughs> who isn't, right? I ask them, 
where is their circle of support? And that we need expanding circles of support, like a solar system, you know, with planets going out, some of them close and some of them far, but feeling like we're part of an, a circle of support that expands and that we can trust these people. And to cultivate a circle of support is part of part of living, I think, in, in a healthy way and, and part of being part of something larger than ourselves, which is what the Tao reminds us that we are. But we need to consciously rebuild our circles of support because our, our culture has uh, pretty much undermined them. <laughs> yes, it's it's we've got a long way to go and a, and a lot of work to do. And so and actually, I think that leads nicely into another question I have, which is you've defined duh or Taoist virtue as a mixture of compassion and detachment. We always want to try to leave people with some practical things. I think you've given us a ton of practical things today, but since you know, Tao Te Ching, your virtue is a, a key component of Taoism and expressing virtue in our daily lives is obviously central to that. Using your definition of a mixture of compassion and detachment, what are some practical ways of cultivating virtue in our own personal lives? Okay, uh, something that we definitely need to do because our culture won't do it for us. Uh, detachment supports compassion. Yes, um, one translation of a line from chapter 22 of the Tao on your ego and you will discover your soul. But regardless, the message is detachment from egocentric attachment and defensive stress Stress, of course, puts our brains and our bodies in an emergency reaction that bypasses our higher brain centers. Uh, our blood pressure rises, our immune and digestive systems shut down, our muscles tense up to deal with a perceived threat. And this works really well if we need to jump out of the way of a speeding car. But I would be venturing to say that most people I know, including me, given the way our society is structured, are in chronic stress. And whenever we experience stress, we can, we can, you know, have anxiety, depression, inflammatory disorders, cardiovascular disease, and the inability to relate to ourselves and others with compassion, because we're too busy defending ourselves. You know, we're scared. We're ah, you know? and our brains see anyone who disagrees with us as, as the enemy. Um, don't bother me, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, what, what can we do? The first thing I think is to recognize when we're stressed and detach, you know, pause and take slow, deep, mindful breaths. And research shows that we can relieve stress by focusing on our breathing. And we do that anyway, so it's, it's not something unusual. The National Hopeful Mindsets Project, which is to try to uh, an effort to cultivate greater hope among college students. The first step in cultivating greater hope and living in a sense of oneness, which I see as Tao, uh, is to pause for 90 seconds, take three deep mindful breaths when we feel stressed to get ourselves back in a centered state of calm and clarity. 
And research at Stanford's Center for Compassion has found that slow, deep, mindful breathing is the first step to develop greater understanding and compassion of ourselves and others. So detaching from stress, connecting with our centers, returning to center um, helps us. And we can also, ah, uh, yes, back to nature. <laughs> Develop greater compassion by connecting with nature. Again, that Berkeley study, forest bathing, all kinds of research has shown that just pausing, being to, so two techniques, recognizing and relieving our stress individually, and finding a way to connect with nature on a regular basis. Those two things can help us create greater compassion for ourselves and others and for our, the beautiful planet that we call home, which is to live with virtue on many levels. Thanks, Diane. I, I just have one more question for you, and then I'm gonna hand things over to you. And, and, and in that same vein of applying Taoist principles to our lives, I wanna, I really loved your chapter on Wu Wei in your book. And you do have a lot of practical ways of applying it, but I also am just curious if if there's ways that you would like to share how our listeners can apply Wu Wei or basically not taking contrived actions, not forcing things, aligning ourselves with Tao in a practical, realistic way. Obviously, we have to work to have a, a job and take care of our families and, and have an, an income to survive. We have to take actions, but how do we apply Wu Wei, which is just doing the right amount or just doing enough that's, that's required and not going beyond? Oh, I love Wu Wei. <laughs> Wu Wei is harmonious action instead of demanding the force of ego and willful, willful self-centeredness. It's an action of consciousness in union with Tao when we're aware of the larger patterns within and around us. So um, Wu Wei is fascinating because it's often not what people expect. Sometimes it means waiting for the right moment. And sometimes it means acting spontaneously led by our intuition, just yes, you know. Uh, I experienced Wu Wei when I was an undergraduate trying to work my way through college with a, a lot of little temporary uh, summer jobs and drove by the Riverside Press Enterprise office one day on the way home. And something said to me, spoke to me, you're a writer, you should work there. So I thought, okay, so I drove my little red Volkswagen into the parking lot, did a U-turn, walked inside and said, uh, <clears throat> as a shy 19-year-old, uh, hi, my name is Diane Dreer, I'm a writer, I'd like to apply for a job. And uh, the reporter said, go upstairs to the personnel office, so I did, and, and filled out some papers and they said, our student intern just resigned this morning. We haven't even advertised the job yet. Would you like to work on Monday? And I said, absolutely, yes. Perfect job. Newspaper offices are open 24-7. Uh, I could work around my class schedule. 
I met all these reporters. It was an empowering, wonderful job for me for the rest of my college career. Why did I do that? That was Wu Wei. I was, it was an intuitive flash. On the other hand, uh, I live in California's Silicon Valley where things happen fast and where we're barraged by emails all day long. We've got electronic gadgets, multitasking, and students walking around campus looking at their phones, <laughs> not at each other, or the beautiful trees. Uh, so I use Wu Wei when I need to make an important decision, and I don't have all the information yet. Instead of jumping to a conclusion and being reactive, like, I've got to do this now, I just take a deep breath and say, okay, what do I need, you know, and give myself some time to process it. Wu Wei, especially irritating emails. Uh, instead of flashing back with another irritation reaction, I'll just wait and come back when I'm more centered and answer the email when I have full possession of my faculties and I'm not uh, stressed out and irritated with my higher brain functions offline. So Wu Wei is, is timing and awareness of of the larger patterns within and around us. And it's a great wisdom. It's wonderful. I love Wu Wei. Well, thanks for sharing your wisdom of, of Wu Wei and Taoist virtue and, and all the stories that you have to share. I, I do want to hand over the interview to you now, Diane, and feel free to ask David and I any, any questions that you have for us. Okay. Well, my first question for David is that the Tao Te Ching offers a more inclusive vision of leadership than we're used to in the West. And as an executive coach, how do you draw upon the Tao to help people realize their potential as leaders? Mm, that's a great question. Um, as an executive coach, the people I work with are mostly in the corporate world. So uh, they Usually they are very competitive, driven, overachieving people, or at least they think of themselves. That's the self-image they have. Uh, when you work very closely with them, you see that some of those characteristics which bring them to their bring the success to them, to their career and to their organization are also the ones that creates dysfunctioning to them. So that again, that in itself represents the working of Tao. I typically, I do not, do not uh, talk directly with them about Tao principles. Instead, I just have a conversation with them uh, you know, talking in the terms of their businesses. For example, the pharmaceutical, uh, you know, pharmaceutical company, their pharmaceutical businesses or financial services businesses. In talking about their competitive landscape or their, the challenge they're facing around their organizational or people issues, then in the search for solution, there are sometimes very interesting, I would call Tao moment, where kind of the insight 
that dawn upon them, what I call the Tao moment or the Zen moment. Um, typically, I think nowadays there are a couple of things. You know, I, I want to also connect to what you said earlier uh, about a lot of the leaders, you know, in Tao De Jing, uh, you know, Lao Tzu talked about the ability of discernment, the, power, the art of discernment. When things are still small, you know, I, I want to echo what you said earlier. When they are just, you know, running around, getting very stressed out and burned out, it's really hard to notice, you know, some of those things when they are still at the early stage before they turn into crisis. So through coaching, uh, sometimes I, you know, work with them around, you know, uh, you know, uh, mindful practices or just kind of slow down and paying attention or create a ritual, let's say, at the end of the week to do a, you know, a self-reflection or, you know, or strategic thinking session so that, you know, they have that moment with themselves that they can, you know, there's some clarity and also stillness because that stillness, you know, as you said earlier, is essential to look at things in a more holistic way and also look at the whole range of possibilities as opposed to only a very narrow, you know, solutions or usually reactive solutions. So those are the times when, you know, those Tao principles emerge. For another example, um, around what I would say a lot of the executives, they are wondering, they want to, uh, especially the aspiring ones, they want, they wonder how they can create effective followership. In other words, they feel they got promoted, they get the titles, but people really don't listen to them. So there's the question there is the positional power that they obviously have versus the personal power, which going back to Dao De Jing is really the De, whether these people have De in themselves, not just through the way they speak, they speak, they make speeches, but in making daily action, uh, daily decisions or actions. People who, especially who work with them very closely, they are very clear-sighted. They are very, they, they know, uh, you know, very intimately the working style of their leaders. And they may not speak, but if you talk to them confidentially, uh, you know, all the people have a pretty good reading of the, of the person, but the person may not necessarily have that self-awareness. They have a lot of the blind spots. So those things, I would say, uh, really, I, I feel there, there's a lot of opportunities there, especially nowadays uh, with the leadership. Uh, as you said, uh, alluded earlier, the command and the control leadership uh, is still there. Uh, old things are not dying away quickly, but new things are emerging. New things meaning, um, you know, people are looking for leaders who are more authentic, authentic less egocentric uh, or less some some of the you know narcissistic leaders 
they are there, they are full of themselves. But people, especially young people nowadays, they want to work with the leaders who acknowledge their individuality. There's another piece I, I think, which I think is very interesting. And uh, we talked earlier about that individuality and the community. Coming from China, like a Chinese culture, uh, it's more of a communal culture versus the individualistic uh, culture. What I find very interesting is that um, this culture, American culture, I've been enjoying um, the most is that space it gives to individuals to acknowledge the uniqueness. While in the collective culture, there's a lot of spoken, unspoken, written and unwritten pressure to follow the norms. That's what, uh, but also over the years I've seen, if carried to an extreme, that individuality, that can lead to isolation, loneliness and insecurity. Part of the reason I see where, um, you know, talking about uh, like Thomas Merton, one reason I like him the most because he knows that he, he acknowledges that no man is the island, but at the same time, not to, you know, kind of morph into a communal culture that push everyone the same. I think that's the really tough tension that we're facing now. Maybe we should, you know, I think a part of the forces, there are larger forces that push us to be the same, you know, like to create something, every individual in a common shared images. And uh, as individuals, we don't like that because we all have our individual endowment. But at the same time, we want to get connected to a larger whole, maybe not the whole world, maybe the small community. I think that's the, what we're sorting out. Maybe Lao Tzu has uh, some kind of wisdom in when he say, keep the villages small, so that we all have that space, we have the connectedness, but at the same time, you know, we, we still there's room for individuality. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, the idea of, of having a small community that we feel that we're an intrinsic part of. Uh, my husband grew up in New York City, in Brooklyn, actually. He had, but, but New York City has neighborhoods, or at least it did when he was growing up. So he knew everybody in his neighborhood, even though he lived in this huge city, okay? Uh, I live in the Silicon Valley and we do not have neighborhoods. We have a lot of freeways though. And uh, you know, people are zipping around in their cars and, and it takes real effort to, uh, to create and maintain community in a place as, as mobile as the Silicon Valley. But we need that small community. And I think that uh, leaders can help create that sense of community at work so that everyone feels connected and appreciated, empowered to bring forth their uniqueness and all part of the team. I, I like to watch, uh, well, obviously, uh, the San Francisco Giants. Uh, because <laughs> Not the Minnesota Twins or, uh, you know, <laughs> the Florida team. But when you see a team, and there are times when they do a, a double play, for example, and everybody is centered 
and they're all working together in a state of flow. They are being their best as individuals, and they are also being their best as part of the community. And I think that really great leaders bring that out in their people to be their best individual self, to use their own personal strengths and to connect with the strengths of all others. And in that sense, I mean, that's exhilarating to watch, let alone to be part of. You know, exactly, when- exactly. I think a part of the fear, part of the drive that everybody is trying to turn everybody else into their self own image because they feel insecure. Once they feel secure in their individuality, and they are connected with others in that small community, I think that insecurity problem can be solved. I agree. You know, when we recognize what, who we are, if, you know, if I'm the pitcher, uh, I'm not the third baseman, you know, I'm not the right, right. <laughs> I have to play my part at, to the best of my ability, and the catcher has to play his or hers, and we all work together, bringing our strengths together. When I was department chair, I had very competitive and they were, you know, when one of when somebody published a book, the other colleague would complain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with you? We're on the same team. If one of our guys gets a home run or a touchdown, it's good for all of us. Let's 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 get our wider vision. here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. And I have a question for Ian. Um, as a psychotherapist, how you, do you draw upon the wisdom of Tao to help your clients find their balance and achieve greater well-being in this very challenging time? <laughs> I mean, the key word, obviously, that we keep bumping into is is balance, and of course, that's that is the challenge. Some of it specifically in psychotherapy, we're, we're typically trying to focus on internal states. Again, as, as the therapist, I can't, I can't change the externals and, and people's life situation. I can help them identify if there's external things in their life that's contributing to them feeling out of balance, but primarily in therapy, we're, we're, dealing with you know what's what's inside of us so i even put on my psychotherapy website that very explicitly that i'm influenced by taoism so that people do if if they're if they're familiar with taoism they kind of know hey here's someone who's going to probably bring some of that in you know balance you know we talk about um you're talking about detachment and in in a third wave cognitive behavioral approach talk about psychological flexibility and i think that with psychological flexibility and understanding how to give ourselves psychological flexibility we we do have more tools available to to find that balance so some of those things might be you know, our relationship to our thoughts. Do we, do we cling to our thoughts? Do we get stuck on our thoughts? Or are we able to kind of let them kind of come and go like, like the weather? Same with our emotions. Are, are we able to experience our emotions, but let them flow without getting stuck on them, without 
kind of creating a struggle with our emotions because we start believing that, oh, if, if I'm feeling lonely, that must mean that it's because, you know, no one likes me and, and, and no one likes me. Now that starts triggering all these memories of all the times that we felt like no one likes us. And then we can start building a whole identity around I'm someone that, that no one likes. And this can all create a lot of rigidity internally. And so where there's rigidity, it's, there's also going to be a challenge in staying balanced because, you know, we gotta, we gotta go with the flow. So I think psychological flexibility is, is one of the key things that can help people to stay balanced. But oddly enough, I'm, I'm, I, I really identify more with being a depth psychologist. So people like Stephen Mitchell, who's a relational psycho um, analyst, Carl Jung, who's also, you know, a classic psychoanalyst. Um, there's um, a, a branch of psychoanalysis that kind of went down through gestalt and body-mind therapies um, and Hakomi kind of came out the other end, which Ron Kurtz was the founder of Hakomi, and and it is deeply influenced by Taoism, and 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 I really find a lot of the techniques in there can be really helpful for people to find balance. So, you know, what we're talking about there, really trying to get at core beliefs that people have way down deep inside, and and this is where the depth part comes in because. Where do our core beliefs come from? They come from our life experiences, typically largely from our family of origin and our developmental trajectory. And on the other end of that developmental trajectory, we usually leave with some core beliefs. And 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 some of these can be things like the one I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, I, I'm someone that nobody likes or, you know, I can't get my needs met or to be honest with, with people means being too vulnerable or, you know, they can show up in a lot of different ways, but the end result can be the same thing, which is that we're not able to be in life in a way that, that we would as like when we're talking about a, a Taoist looking at the whole picture, looking at the context, looking at, you know, where do I fit in as an individual in the context of what's happening? If we're looking at everything kind of filtered through these core beliefs that have been distorted by our childhood experiences, we're going to have a much more difficult time doing Wu Wei. We're going to have a much more difficult time, you know, when you were talking about listening to your heart, when you pulled your red car into the parking lot and wanted to go and apply for that, job because you know what if you had had this core belief of of something like you know i I don't have anything to offer you know you're going to filter out that spontaneous heart talk that 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 said to you like hey here's an opportunity and i'm going to take it and so you know by understanding these core beliefs and helping people to process them metabolize them differently break them up so that they're not creating this sort of distortion in their worldview. I mean, I'm someone who really 
um, inactive cognitive science. So Francisco Varela, who also started a, a he's, he's passed on, but he started a project with the Dalai Lama and getting cognitive science and Buddhism to have a dialogue, recognizing how much they needed each other. And, and his particular branch of cognitive science, which I think aligns beautifully with the Tao, really talks about how each one of us enacts a world. And, and what does he mean by that? He's not, he's not talking about solipsism where, you know, when we look out, all we see is a reflection of ourselves. What he, what he means is, is that it's rooted in biology, which is that each one of us has a, a nervous system that's unique to ourselves. Now that nervous system has a history of interacting with the world or Tao, if you will. And that history of, of interactions, not just within the organism, but the entire evolutionary history from, you know, the time we were single cell organisms till now shapes that world that we enact. So we enact a world in our nervous system, but it's a relationship with the external world. So, you know, there is an external world there. But what we actually experience is our own enacted version of that world. So I think that's pretty critical because I think sometimes then it helps us to understand, you know, everything that I'm seeing is sort of a mirror of, of myself and my own kind of beliefs and not necessarily this pure unfiltered experience of what's out there. So I think that's the critical piece is that when we when we can really deeply understand and know ourselves, then we can also deeply understand this world that we enact each day and how maybe some of the ways that were you had mentioned, like lash, lashing out or um, not slowing down or being still has less to do with reality and more to do with our own kind of core beliefs. So helping people to better understand that, I think, um, in a very deep way can help a lot of people to um, have balance. And then the psychological flexibility just kind of has some additional kind of coping skills. But I, I think the depth psychology is really the most important. Wow. <laughs> you have given me a lot to think about there, Ian. Thank you very much. Um, our core beliefs influence the way we perceive what's going on around us. And the way we perceive what's going on around us is the way we create what's going on around us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, to become more detached from some of these very negative core beliefs that can limit us is part of a process of discernment that I think goes on throughout our lives. I mean, I used to be a very uh, driven, busy person because I felt like I had to do more and get and, and accomplish more in order to just be okay. It's sort of like treading water, you know, instead of uh, floating or swimming. <laughs> and uh, to recognize why this behavior happens, we have to go deeper. And uh, that going deeper is, is part of uh, the ongoing process of dynamic growth that to me is living with the Tao. So thank you so much.
And actually, that's that is a beautiful uh, point to end on because we did talk about something I was thinking about before was conflict resolution, and we we touched on that earlier. So, the personal quest for uh, for discernment, balance, and oneness with the Tao. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Diane, we really appreciate you being with us today. It's just been an awesome, incredible time. And, you know, you're, you're actually our first guest on the podcast. And I can't think of a, a, a better first guest to have had. I, I hope that, you know, your presence here is a sign of just the, the, the real quality uh, experience that we can have when we, as you were saying, kind of expand our communities. And I personally feel grateful for having expanded our community to also and include you. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And I, I am honored to be part of this beautiful community. Peace to you both. Thank you. Come back soon. <laughs>